Escape from Plan A. Hey everyone, this is Diana, and today I'm joined by Yo Peng. Hey, how's it going? Uh, and two new guests. We have uh, Xiao Yun. Hi. And Sara. Hi. And we're all here because we have experience in like the scientific or healthcare fields. And we kind of wanted to do a d- deep dive of, you know, like different kinds of either racism or xenophobia, kind of both, I guess, you know, in in these areas and how they affect you and all of us. How did this start? Like, Yopong, you had this article that you shared, and I felt like it was pretty important to talk about because people don't really think of, like, science and medicine as, like, places where racism is fomenting. I mean, you do if you're, like, like a person of color, but, like, in the mainstream, you know, people think of, like, the Hippocratic Oath or, you know, like, scientists being apolitical, you know, in these, like, ivory towers chasing knowledge or whatever. But it's, like, in reality, no, like, everyone's super fucking racist and, like, it comes, it jumps out at you in different ways. Uh, And we kind of want to, like, talk about how it happens and what you can do to protect your own body and like protect your relatives when it matters. Yeah. And I'm glad we have two guests here that can, can speak to some of their experiences because Diana, you and I are more on the, the biological sciences part of it. So less the, the medical field. Um, and I think, you know, personal experience is super important when, when it comes to things like this, because it's hard to find like quantitative data per se, and I mean, obviously, racism is an act of, of like emotional and mental trauma and violence, right? So, so um, glad to have people here. I, I think for brief context, you know, we're in what, month seven of the coronavirus lockdown in the US, where I think I saw the numbers today, like 220,000 people have died from it, mostly people of color. And the, there's been an eruption of xenophobia. And maybe it's not in the main, mainstream news anymore, how it's affecting Asians, not just in the US, but everywhere. In, in politics, we have two old racist white men debating which of them is the greater China hater. And uh, I think this article just does a good job of kind of wrapping that around and talking about this, these two scientists who, who um, it, they make it seem like they're, they're born and raised in China. And they say that that trying to talk about COVID, they found so much, found themselves always on the defensive and um, talk about how this ties into xenophobia, uh, especially because they're the ones trying to talk about it. And then they even have a part at the end, which we'll get to about, um, there's some parts of, of sexism as well, because someone in their circles that they know that was trying to spread the alarm was a Chinese woman and, and all the people that she was sending it to, like none of the white men cared at all. And that uh, that was one of those early alarm bells that if if people took seriously, um, we could have bonded better. Oh, I remember that part. So, so one of the like white or like a bunch of the white men that she um, sent it to were like suggesting her to Google 
COVID or something instead of actually reading the article and taking it seriously. But a lot of the women of color that she sent the article to were like, oh, this is really important. Thanks for sharing. And like, that was it, like straight up. I forget, were the authors in the West or were they still, or were they in China? They're in the West. Um, one of them is in Belgium and one of them is actually in Berkeley. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the the, the ignorance and the, the ways that the media and just people in general talk to, tend to talk about China. Uh, not only they argue, is, is it harmful like politically and, and to people of Chinese descent uh, like myself, it's also like been a complete like roadblock to actually advancing ways of combating COVID, right? Like science and medicine, in theory, like you said, are supposed to be this um, like collaborative cross borders. Like we gotta we gotta unite to fight this uh, crisis. But as you all know now, and and as our two two guests can speak to now, you know now it seems like any study or any finding by the Chinese uh, doctors or scientists is now immediately in question. Where as soon as mm-hmm. some like Pfizer or Moderna or whatever U.S. company says something, it's like, oh, or like, or like Fauci, right? Anthony Fauci. Everyone's like, oh, he's right. Everyone trusts him. And so that's, that's really not how this is supposed to work if we're all trying to defeat the virus, which we are. Uh, I guess I wanted to, to ask our two guests, um, Xiaoyun and, and Sara, what, what have your experiences been like so far? To date, I haven't really had to um, deal directly with COVID yet uh, as a nursing student. They don't allow us in places where there are high COVID risk. Some of us have to get tested uh, weekly because uh, we're currently in our um, skilled nursing facility uh, rotation. And it's a high risk population uh, with like, uh, especially old people who are living in those types of facilities. But I do, as you were speaking, um, Yopong, I was um, thinking of two the beginning of like the quarantine period or even like right before that, uh, a lot of people just thought that masks were really useless. Mm-hmm. And I understand that there's still like a subsect of people who are anti-maskers. But um, I remember there were actually a lot of uh, like the CDC was saying it. There were a lot of YouTube or influencer like doctors and nurses who are saying like, oh, well, you know, wearing a mask and N95 isn't going to help you anyway, so you shouldn't like use them. There was just a lot of misinformation uh, that was spread that just didn't make sense at all. We know now, obviously, that masks work. But of course, if masks didn't work, why were health professionals using it in like the hospital? Yeah, and I think I will just kind of echo that my work um, in the healthcare system is definitely more on the administrative sort of um, programmatic side. So um, working with a hospital system, but not like directly um, serving patients. But um, what I saw kind of with my with my experience um, around COVID and was really around like looking at data and looking at, um, you know, populations that were being most impacted in, in the region um, that I lived in. And so I live in a city that is um, in the South, um, that is like in a state that is really predominantly being highly affected by COVID-19. And um, disproportionately, as kind of, I think you all have already mentioned, um, impacting people of color. And so like in the region that I live in, our Latino population, Latinx population was getting COVID at like, it was like incredibly disproportionate rates of like 
one third of the cases were Latinx, while only like a, such a small amount of our um, demographics are Latinx um, people in our state, in the state that I live in. And so, um, and then like Black folks were getting it much higher rates and dying at higher rates than obviously the rest of the population. And so it's like totally seeing that in the hospital system um, that I was working in, as well as like just like the day-to-day challenges of people that are coming in that um, language barriers, um, especially folks that also speak like Asian languages, you know, are speaking like a dialect or a different language that are from South America um, or Central America. So that was like a huge barrier, um, recognizing that like people were not getting the information they needed around COVID because like translation and interpretation was so lacking behind um, and like not having enough resources to actually deal um, and like work with those particular communities in like an impactful way. And so like the data, like the information wasn't getting to those communities um, in a timely manner. And so like rates were getting higher and higher. And so that's been like one of the biggest things that I've seen. And then also, you know, now that masking is like a bigger deal, like now it's kind of more in the mainstream ish, things are getting slightly better, but now they're getting worse again because of folks just, re kind of going back out and and the same populations are still getting like more impacted um so that's really what i've seen on my perspective of like the data um and like populations that are being impacted the most um in our communities yeah i'll just add on more more common knowledge from uh from our internet Uh, there have been a couple articles floating around probably in the last month or so about how um filipino workers are Four percent, I think, of, of total uh, nurses, registered nurses, but they make up like thirty percent of of uh, healthcare worker deaths from COVID. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And like the, these are the kind of things that you know, if you have to be like like me in, in a lot of like Asian based either Facebook groups or, or whatever to see them. Yep. And and it, there's not a lot of traction. And then there was another one recently um, because I'm I'm based in the Bay Area. Mm. So, so SF is near and dear to me. Um, Chinese people in SF are actually the, the, the most affected by COVID in, in SF. I think to date, 38% of all COVID deaths Dang. in SF are Chinese. Chinatown's been ravaged by it too in many ways. Mm. So those are things I think that you don't don't hear about as much. Yeah, I think I read an article that was like Asian American patients, COVID patients are like, three times or six times as likely to die from COVID than their white counterparts or something like that. I haven't read that, but I could see that for sure. There's actually reporting on, you know, like other minorities, but Asian Americans, like in the general reporting, they're like either not counted in the statistics or just like not reported on. Yeah. It's like the data is made invisible or like the numbers are like just not accurately reported or I mean, I will say kind of going back around like the Filipino nurses like that. I've not seen that report anywhere else except like on specific Facebook groups or from particular friends that like are in the know and like are looking up at that information. It's like not like in the mainstream at all, like at all. Yeah. And I think that that ties into a lot of what we're saying, which is sometimes the people that are not only most affected by it, but even if they're if the people who are reporting on this being like a big issue yeah um, if they're asian well first of all if they're chinese or if they're chinese um, passing right uh, we always talk about uh east asian passing if you if you mm-hmm. look asian um obviously uh, people 
people don't just racists don't distinguish right. um there's there's this automatic bias towards like oh we have to take this person with a grain of salt and like i'm not gonna go into the whole like oh but some of us are american we're born here no no fuck that like that's it doesn't matter like if, if you're born here if you're an immigrant it doesn't matter you're no one no one deserves to be be treated like that you're automatically kind of viewed with a, a little bit of a, a side eye first and versus if it was it was a white person sharing it and so I think that itself has has contributed to the issues. It's, it's hard to, as the people say in this paper, that's a, that's a super hard thing to quantify. Mm. But the reality is that it's hitting our communities hard and with the xenophobia. Um, and we shouldn't just say xenophobia; it's just anti-Asian racism in general. That's that's just spiked during COVID. You know, we have risks of the actual virus itself, which we still don't know much about, and we still are really nowhere near vaccine as as far as those of us who are not in the medical field can can um, seem to see and. We have that and also just the actual like racism like that we have to face when we go out. You know, there's a lot of violence that's occurring. There's a lot of threats, um, insults, and, and in many, many cases, like flat out violence too. So it's um, yeah. those things kind of tend to not be taken seriously. Yeah. You know what I want to know is how it even gets enacted, how racism, like healthcare racism gets enacted on Asian people. I understand like how colorism happens or how like racism happens to black people or black women. I think even in some medical schools today, like the doctors are being trained that like black women experience higher thresholds of pain. Yeah. And like ridiculously like antiquated, like super racist ideas dating back from slavery. I think Xiaoyun, like you, sh- you should talk later on this, but you know, like doctors and nurses aren't even being trained to diagnose, mm-hmm. you skin know, like a, yeah. yeah, skin conditions on darker skin. But it's like how, like, what is even going on, such that Asians are being treated less, or like, you know, like what what's going on here? Because I, I don't know what's going. On. I don't know what what the basis of these inequities are when it comes to Asians. So like, there's no framework about it because there's just nothing on it. Like these, there's nobody talking about it in science there's publishing. And then there's the side eye, but it's mm-hmm. like, if you're an Asian patient, you go into a clinic, are doctors going to side eye? Like, like what's going on there? Uh, I can speak on this. I have like a, like two anecdotes off the top of my head. And then I actually recently wrote a, a research paper on um, Asian Americans. Um, and so I can speak a little bit about like the barriers to uh, healthcare access. The first anecdote would be a few weeks ago, I had to go to the emergency room. After saying hi to the, um, the PA, like the first thing she asked me is whether or not I would need a translator and if I could speak English. Mm-hmm. But that's like even before she had it tested whether or not I could actually speak English. Mm-hmm. Like it's not something that she noticed like, oh, there's some sort of language barrier here. But she asked you in English whether mm-hmm. you needed a translator? Yeah. That's hilarious. Wow. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, she's nice and everything, but it's definitely still a microaggression. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's one. The second one, it actually happened to my family member by another Asian woman who was um, a nurse practitioner. 
my family member is an elderly family member, and she has a lot of uh, health complications. And she went to the NP to ask for a note. Sorry, could you clarify what an NP is? NP nurse practitioner. Okay. So she um, asked the NP for a note to basically ask the people who were um, testing her on the immigration interview to mm-hmm. speak louder because she's hard of hearing. And she just started yelling at my family member and well, my family members and just like yelling at them saying that like what they were doing is so illegal and like, like all these other really super racist things. She also refused to look at her medical history, even though another family had brought a member had brought it. She has end stage renal disease. So with that, a lot of times uh, the legs swell up. Mm-hmm. And her go-to solution was to amputate my family member's leg off without realizing, hey, there's another reason causing this. And it's oh like super fixable. Oh my God. So the, did they do it? No, of course not. Okay. No, okay. no way. They were like, that was they were proposing with like this drastic stuff. Yeah. Off wow. the bat. Without even looking at her medical history. That is so which ridiculous. is the first thing she should have. Yeah. I'm honestly speechless. I mean... Yes, it is our own people sometimes that, that uh, perpetuate the racism. But but the other thing is, wait a second, isn't that illegal? Can, don't you have to like go through more than that? Like what? I, I'm so confused. I wasn't there. I only heard it through other family members. But basically, yeah, like a family member accompanied my grandma, um, who's the patient in question. And like mm-hmm. she brought like all of this paper, like all of these documents to the appointment to say like, hey, you know, here is her medical history, right? She has this disease that's causing swelling in her legs. The good thing is that she has other doctors that are helping her with this condition. But that was the first time she was switched to this um, primary care physician. I was so mad. Wow. I told them to sue and to report that NP, but unfortunately that NP was almost retiring and she already had like a bunch of complaints on her record anyway, but she was still allowed to practice. Wow. Yeah. That is so frustrating. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what that reminds me of is, do you guys hear about that report of the young woman who like her house burned down and her parents died in the house Mm. and then she was convicted of murdering her parents and she served yeah this happened near boston she served 17 years in prison and just recently she was released because i guess the da that got her convicted was investigated um because of like some racist emails that wow yeah, so it's like, like this stuff happens. Oh I did God. see that. Yeah, yeah. Now I remember. Wow. That is wild. Yeah, we can post the link in this the show notes. It's stuff like that. That's just like it's a system, and people they they just don't care or like yeah. they. I don't. I don't know how to say it, but it's just like it's, if it's a bunch of people who don't view you as a human being worthy of of mm. care in any kind of capacity, they'll just like let you fall through the cracks and you'll, you'll suffer the consequences. If you don't have your own, you don't come with your own protection, like another family member or something Uh like that. 
even then they tried to like report it to the social workers and the social workers were you know of course backing up that np so it definitely is a system yeah but i guess in terms of you know like a theoretical framework for understanding what is going on in that nurse's head to be like oh you need to amputate or you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, because it's like uh, I, I still don't understand why she would just not even look through your medical history. Well, I was just gonna say. I mean, I think it's like just this framework of like you're not human or you're not like from here, and so like I, I know best. Like I, you know, that mentality of like I don't even need to talk to you to like understand because I, I don't see you as like a real person or you're so like far removed from like what I see is like being a real patient or whatever that is. I think like, I think it's like really that subconscious sort of belief that manifests and like how your grandma, grandmother was treated as well as like, you know, how other people of color are treated in, in healthcare. Like just that sort of like, you're not human. You're not like, you don't feel pain. You don't, there are no other options. It's like incredibly drastic measures that are taken versus like actually communicating with the person that you're trying to like take care of. Right. This ties in. I just happened to be looking at this particular passage in, in the paper because my reaction is just like, what the fuck? Fuck this yeah. person, right? Like it's just anger. Um, and this th- this is uh, far more articulate. I uh, quote, <laughs> Ignorance is a willful act. It is created, sustained, reproduced, a process that involves different lines of labor and various devices. Choices are made by some people with good or bad intentions to decide what should be kept from others for how long and in which way. And it just feels like what 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 you said, Xiaoyun, about um, the the other social workers backing up this practitioner and that that's presented multiple complaints. That whole system is just yeah. is just there to right subvert and to silence any of these complaints i mean i'm i'm not i'm sure that some of those complaints were were different than than your particular mm-hmm. family member's case but yeah like that's just one way that this is done yeah it's like ignorance like put into a system like but it's like not ignorance it's like willful like i feel like even ignorance is like kind like kind way to put it yeah, I've always had a problem with the word. I've always tried to say willful ignorance instead because it's just like, well, you're just being delusional, but Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe a better like phrase would be like malicious ignorance. Right, right. right. Ooh, yeah. That's really what it is. That's you you just coined coined something. <laughs> that's going to be big. That's malicious it, ignorance. It. Yeah. Like <laughs> so like is there any kind of a sense of Asians being the perpetual foreigner. You don't people people react to us like, what are you even doing here? You don't belong right. here. Right. Is there? Do you ever get any sense that like these racist health practitioners are kind of subconsciously trying to like make people disappear? Mm. Could you expand maybe on what you mean by making people disappear? Like, they're subconsciously trying to kill you. Or maybe just get rid of you as, like, as a patient. Yeah, it's like this feeling of you're some foreign body, you know? We don't want you here. So it's like subconsciously they will treat somebody in a way that, like, they don't even know that they're doing it. You know, like Mm -hmm. the implicit bias. Mm -hmm. Okay. But they'll actually be doing the worst thing that they can come up with 
to try to kill you because like you just aren't supposed to be here and that that's what they're thinking i mean i'm i'm just throwing ideas out like it sounds really really bad but like that's the only thing that i can think of you know because it's like i i don't know what like i just don't know what they're thinking when they're doing stuff like this i don't think that they're necessarily trying to murder people <laughs> But like consciously, but I think that you are kind of onto something in that like it's uncomfortable for them to treat these patients, so they want to get mm-hmm. rid of them, right? They want a higher turnover rate for these patients, so mm-hmm. they do whatever is convenient, maybe and easiest to them. For in that NP's um, instance, you know, yeah, she's gonna have to write up some reports, but like with the swelling, she has to do that anyway. So the best thing is like, okay, just refer her to someone else, like a specialist, right? Who or a surgeon who might be able to perform that procedure. But then that also gets rid of um, my grandma under her care, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I was getting at. It's just like I, you're a like you're a pest. I want you out of my sight. It's like they're reacting the way that they would if they saw a cockroach in their kitchen versus a patient in their practice you know like that's the sense i'm getting yeah as you're saying that i remember when i was working as a nurse assistant i had a coworker, or one day uh, a patient had passed away and his roommate uh was very very sad his roommate was crying all day it was like incredibly sad to see and uh, one of the other nurse assistants that usually took care of him um, I was like, oh, you know, like asking him about it, like, isn't it really sad? He's like, mm. no, it's good. Mm. And I'm like, what? Yeah, that was exactly my reaction. <laughs> I was like, what did I just hear? This guy was celebrating that this patient had died because he felt like he was such a nuisance. <gasps> he just oh didn't want to deal with one more patient. It was good. Like the census was over. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm saying, right? It's like they don't they don't treat you as a person. So they don't care if you live or die. They just want to get rid of you. They want you out of their sight as quickly as they can. And so they're not even treating your condition. You know, they're not like house, you know, with a whole expert team trying to figure out is it lupus or not? They're just like whatever they think of immediately, that's what you have. And the subconscious reason is they just want you out of their side. They don't want you in their plane of existence even because Mm -hmm. they, like deep down, you're a foreign body. You don't belong there. I have two theories. Well, they're they're, they're connected that I wanted to to run by um, the two of you in the medical field. Historically, and, and this is just how leftist politics, dehumanization is the first step towards genocide, right? Mm. The, the sooner we can strip you of your language, your culture, anything that makes you human, now we don't feel bad when we kill you. So that's that's one thing. And I think that in many Plan A pods up, up to this point, there's been a lot of talk about the dehumanization and the, the sort of preparation of, of something like this against against China, right? The second point is the uh, the subconscious element of it. The medical field is not any different than the rest of the U.S. in terms of it's it's still sub- like there's these are the same people yeah. that are subjected to the same media, the same brainwashing, which everyone loves to throw on China, the same brainwashing that happens to them in the U.S. here. 
And so what happens then is everyone has this anti-China and by association, anti-Asian bias in them. And bias is such a nice word to say, like fucking disgusting racism, right? And so you have these two things combined. They don't, they, they may not like necessarily want you dead on the spot, like you were saying, Xiaoyun, but um, mm-hmm. that's just one way that they slowly start to make you less and less important to the point of like your story just there, that person being like, oh no, it's good. This person's dead, finally. Mm. That is not how you treat a fellow human being. There's no, there's no way that that can happen. So I, I wanted to run that idea by by you two. This idea that this dehumanization is is well one step towards genocide, but also that the the medical field is is subject to just as much bias and just as much influence as as the rest of us, right? Like there's not this super duper thorough, powerful, like implicit bias training that doctors go through that makes them immune to this, right? I mean, so you know, you've been talking about uh, talking about skin tones and how that. Uh, mm-hmm. affects treatment and how that's not taught at all and you had to bring it up to your professor right like that's that's part of it isn't it yeah like coming into school i kind of anticipated and was like looking out for it in the curriculum for example if a patient is in pain if a patient is like coding and you ignore that patient that's mm-hmm. negligence and you can get your license stripped at the least right negligence is part of harm and part of like the Hippocratic Oath and even like um, the nursing oath is that, you know, you have to do no harm. But how can you do no harm when you're not even like taught these really basic and easy things like how to recognize different skin conditions on darker skin, right? Yeah, that's like a huge problem. And I would have thought that that was part of the curriculum already, but it's not. Yeah, and I would add that, like, thinking about what you said around the bias and the healthcare system really being, like, mimicking the bias that exists in, like, our entire society. And, I mean, I think that perpetuates not only with the patients uh, that are, are within the healthcare system, but, like, the people that work within those systems. You know, Diana, you were talking about, like, being, like, disappearing or, you know, being made invisible. And I think that happens not only, again, like, to the patients, but to like the people that are Asian that are working like within those systems. Again, being from the South, like I think the dynamic in the South is very um, interesting around like thinking about race. I mean, and it makes sense. It's very much like very binary of like black or white. And so when you op- when you exist outside that, that binary, it's like, it's like you shouldn't even be part of the conversation or like you're not even in, like you being part of the conversation on racism is like, you're not, it doesn't impact like you're basically told I've been told basically that like it it doesn't impact me so like why am I speaking up about it and it's like what (laughs) again like just being made invisible you don't even belong in this conversation this is not your conversation you shouldn't even be here to like or this shouldn't even you shouldn't even feel bad about x y and z happening because like this isn't your community or whatever and so that's where I've really noticed it I'm just like in the every single day kind of like ways of working and operating like on that kind of side of like the admin side of in the healthcare system um, as well. So um, yeah, I worked for a um, large medical system in the South. And after George Floyd's murder, lots of organizations, institutions were like putting out statements around like wanting to 
be more intentional about racial equity um, and anti-racism work, like my institution did similar things. So I and my office that I was part of got pulled into doing anti-racism work. That, that's what it was called, like anti-racism work. What ended up happening was our office really was perpetuating white supremacy, cultural norms <laughs> in the ways that we were trying to do the anti-racism work, working with women of color, including myself, but also um, a black woman and other folks, a Latino woman who were basically like their expertise was undermined and basically told like you need to fit into the narrative that the institution is wanting to state, like that we not pushing folks don't like we were going to do a training for senior, like kind of management folks and, you know, higher up folks in the institution. And it was like, don't push them. Don't say the words white supremacy. Can't use that language. If we push them too hard, they won't want to do anything around anti-racism work. And so like, ultimately, the work that we were doing was on anti-racism. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of like very palatable discussion on what is race and like racism, but it was not like any self-analysis or anything like that. And so me being like pushing back, as like the one staff member in the office that was like able to kind of do that was challenging because it was like I was being told basically implicitly that like why am I so impacted by this because I'm not like I'm I'm Asian like it shouldn't matter to me on this level yeah and then on top of that like the leadership in our office um, was led by a woman of color and so like that was another layer um, of like wow white supremacy showing up even in an office that is led by um, a woman of color and is actually a pretty diverse office. Um, but like those white supremacy patterns were just like so deep. Yeah. Ultimately it was like, this is, and just like the cultural norms around like urgency and not collaborating, um, not listening, not engaging with people that are most impacted. Like that just kept showing up in this, the work that we were trying to do. And so ultimately it was like, okay, I think this is not, this is not a healthy place um, for me to be. Uh, so I ended up, yeah, putting my notice in after that, after those, um, that whole like situation ended. First of all, congrats to you for, for taking that step. That's, that's super brave. And I think oh. that that's, that's something yeah, that that's is undervalued. In fact, saying, saying like, I'm, I'm going to literally withhold my labor. I'm not going to serve you anymore. Um, is very yeah. powerful. I wanted to, to oh. follow up on that though. Before you left, based on what you saw, it did it get like heavily defanged? Do you think that whole push? Because um, I think Teen said this on a previous episode where he was like, "So the leftists have been saying abolish the police for a long time, but abolish yeah. the police quickly became defund the police, which quickly yeah. became defunded by like ten percent over the next two years, right, right. right? Like it just it just loses all steam. And I mean, we're we're what nearly five months since George Floyd was murdered. Mm-hmm. And most of those movements, like you said, I mean, my company was like that too. They talked about mm-hmm. all these changes that we wanted to make, but where are we at now? So did you did right. you see that happen too? Just kind of like get weaker and weaker and then lose all momentum and then nothing happened? Yes. I think it was like, we're going to do this big push. We're going to do this big push. And then ultimately, and maybe it was just me and my like crazy optimism too of like, oh man, we're going to call this up. We're, we're saying we're doing anti-racism work. And so for me, that's like, you, you use that language in a very specific way, right? It means like you're actually like trying to dismantle racist systems and policies and practices and like the ways we operate um, in that level. And then also like the way we are working with each other, right? Like the, our relationships with each other. But really that became buzz, like that's a buzzword. I think it's become a buzzword of like, 
anti-racism is now like um, diversity, equity, inclusion <laughs> work. Like it's like, that's what it is. And it's like, no, it, it's lost its teeth. Like I think that language. And so that was like the terminology that was being used to describe our work. And it was like, this is literally not, this is like, this is like an intro to systemic racism, maybe, you know what I mean? And so there was like, I think like the language mismatch was happening. And then also I do think like, it's easy for organizations to say they want to do radical change, but like literally for that to happen, they have to change everything about how they work, how they operate, how they like, like hire people, how they engage with people, how they like acquire new businesses, like all of that has to change. And like, they are not going to do that. They're not going to do that. You know what I mean? So it's like, ultimately it's just, it's, it's just words, you know? And that's what I realized. Like, it's just performative, you know, for the moment. Yeah, it's kind of like how every startup say every startup says that they have a disruptive technology. <laughs> it's not right, like, right. You know, you're like, oh my god, yeah. you're like killing everybody with your technology exactly. right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's what I noticed, and also, I mean, I think just like on a personal level, like I noticed my own like efforts to push back, like died slowly and slowly over time it was like there's no point there's no point in that like really that like burnout and um sense of just like there's no point to pushing back because the system is like so in place that like any attempt to push back will just like make me exhausted no one else really cares (laughs) the system doesn't care that's what ended up happening and it was like okay i think that's what really was like i can't let myself be pushed down to that point of like letting so many things go that are against my like own sense of integrity (laughs) and I was like I think that means I have to leave but yeah I think it's both and like the institution and like individuals that are in those institutions just like have to give up ultimately because like you can't keep fighting against it ultimately you know or you exit yeah that's I mean it's sad but not surprising yeah yeah I guess my question is like what would it take to create the change like does it Mm. is it gonna be i mean okay because it's like okay i understand if like current doctors who are you know like 60 years old (laughs) set in their ways are gonna be offended if some diversity coach calls them racist (laughs) but like you know like it seems like the same thing is happening at schools you know because like show showing like it sounds like the same shit is happening in the nursing school that you're at, you know, with like the diversity training, you know, if like these younger folks also can't be bothered to interrogate themselves, like where are you at? Where are we at? Like what would it take to even gradually change this, the system? I think there just needs to be like, people who are constantly pushing back not just one person because of course that just you know one person can't do all the work it's just Mm -hmm. too much and leads to burnout very quickly but I guess I'm struggling with it a little bit too I have a few middle-aged white men classmates Mm -hmm. and they take up so much space so much space like they t- can easily take up like 15 minutes of class just talking to the professor. Whereas like we have our curriculum to learn and like, you know, he's not just taking up the professor's time, but he's also taking up all of our, like the fellow classmates time as well. Dude, what the hell? 
What are they even saying? Like, there's office hours for that. Like, yeah. Tell them, like, honestly, is it, is it, I mean, you probably can't do this, but like, honestly, just like stand up and say, sit the fuck down and ask these dumbass questions during office hours. I would pay to see that happen, though. <laughs> I wish I could do that so bad, but like, you know, these type of men, like white men, they don't yeah, push back well. Like, um, one of them actually broke HIPAA several times in front of me. Oh, my God. And I pushed back. I was like, hey, you know, like, should we really be doing that? I try to (laughs) phrase it in a very friendly way. (laughs) And he's like, no, as long as you don't do ABC. And I was like, you just literally did ABC. I can go and find your patient right now. (laughs) Like, you know, I mean, I didn't say anything after that because I don't want to become, like, his target for the next few years. But, like. Right. Yeah, after that, like our, um, I, I talked to a TA who um, instilled some HIPAA training into our class. And uh, he argued with the professor too. It's like, why, why should I respect, like, why should I like do HIPAA? Why can't I mention patient's name? Like, they're not famous. And I'm like, what a class is. Like, you're just saying that you should only respect HIPAA for rich, famous people. Like, really? <laughs> Wow. Yeah. That's like total misunderstanding of HIPAA. Holy crap. Yeah. That's so crazy because like this is a guy who's in nursing school. Yeah, that's <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. What is he gonna do when he's actually like out there in the field? Yeah. Like being a full time nurse. I mean, the thing is he's an old white man. So he speaks <sighs> the language of people who want to hire him. Like like yeah. you were saying, Sarah, like all of those processes are made for people like him. Yeah, so that's, that's my fear is that he's going to breeze through the interview process when that time comes, mm. you know? Yeah. And then I if he does some later, like he can like, you know, yeah. talk it out or like figure it mm-hmm. out and won't get punished yeah. as much as another person, that uh, a person of color, right? Right. Ugh. Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah. So do you think that if patients complain more that they'll be heard more? Because it doesn't seem like coworkers or underlings or even bosses of color will change anything. I mean, ultimately, you know, like healthcare is a industry and Mm -hmm. it is about money, even, even if like the organization is nonprofit. And so it's like, I really do think that's where, that's where you have to hit them. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's where the people yeah. up top, like, really hear it. It's like, oh, shit. Like, our patients are mad. And, like, they're out here maybe going to the news or, like, pushing back. It's like, oh, no, we can't have that. And, like, that's, right. I think, where, like, that that will, like, actually, like, I think, create actual change um, yeah, versus, right. like, internal stuff with, like, mm-hmm. staff or students even. Like, it's much – I think students even, it's, like, a, maybe a little bit better because, like, y'all are paying money to go to school and like there's that investment there, but it's still like not the level I think of like patients and that business side. Right. I mean, one of my textbooks even mentioned that like racism is a liability. <laughs> Literally oh. it's a liability for hospitals and other facilities. Yeah. That's true. I mean, it is true, I guess, but wow. Yeah. yeah. But that's a classic like American hypocrisy thing, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, it, it's a it's a fairly updated uh, textbook, and I think it's like made of different essays. And mm. I think the people who wrote that um, particular chapter are uh, women of color. 
Mm. Um, so, you know, they're kind of making it part of their argument that like, yeah. this is something that, hey, like you need to pay attention to, you need to care about it because even if you don't care about anything else, it's going to hurt your bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. And so even when it's framed like that, they don't do shit. Right. <laughs> like nothing yeah. is going to happen. You know, one of the things that we're getting at here is, first of all, like Xiaoyun was saying, th- I mean, the game is made for the white man. And the, and the white man yeah. is a very individualistic person, right? This idea of American exceptionalism. And so it's hard to change the game from, from within. I think you don't, it's really hard to go into the system and change it. You you know, the system changes mm-hmm. you more more than that. But other than that, I feel like one of the things that's very different and this goes back to not only China, but but Asia and how, how this, this was handled, right? I mean, um, you brought the point of masks earlier. Those countries, so China, South Korea, Japan, masks up in an instant as soon as this broke out, right? They were wearing masks like uh, widespread. And it's because like, first of all, I mean, very few people I would, I would imagine enjoy wearing a mask around. Like I, I, right. I personally find it uncomfortable. I'm going to do it 100% of the time when I'm out because that's, it's to protect others. Right. And, and that's, that's kind of the underlying theme there, which is that there's a sense of collectivism there. We, we get a little deeper into like high context culture, low context culture, but that, that view of collectivism, I think I, I would, I would love to see some, some version of that enacted here because then it's, it's, it's not just about, Oh, what, what does what makes me feel good? What do, what helps me? What helps my bottom line? It's 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 more for the, the the communal good. I mean, it's supposed to feel better too. That's the idea, right? Um, but I wanted to to see if like if like how far are we in in the medical fields from actually having a sense of like the collective of like your like do doctors and nurses do do y'all view yourselves or I guess not you in particular, but the field do, do you really view yourselves as public servants trying to make sure the entire country is as healthy as possible or is it more of like this is a cool job that gives me money i mean I, i'm be- very being very um crude with that particular framework on purpose like to, to give it to extremes um i mean i think it's both and like i do think there are people that like definitely see themselves as like being part of the bigger picture and like here to help like are genuinely in like the healthcare profession to improve and like have everyone be health as healthy as possible. Right. And like, so you have that and then you have others that are like on the other side, like you said that extreme of like wanting to just, you know, like this is a job and you're making money. But I think broadly as like a sector, it's definitely rooted in like, I mean, it's a business, you know? And like, I think that's what it is. It's like, there are those, you know, the oaths that like, you know, especially doctors um, and other kind of nurses and other folks have to do. Um, but I think like when you're working for a healthcare system, for me, even just like, because I used to work in government and then then worked for um, this healthcare system, there was a profound difference in like what it meant to serve for me, like, and what I saw people, how they would talk about it, like, in government, even with lots and lots and lots of challenges, but it was like, taxpayers are paying our salaries. Like we are literally here to serve like the community. That's what it's about. And like in the healthcare system that I worked in, it was like, we're here to serve our patients and the, the entire world. Cause we're supposed to be like a, um, a global like institution. And so like, who is our community? Our community is everybody technically, but like, who do we actually serve? And it's like the people that come here or 
are we serving researchers? Are we serving faculty members? Are we serving like students? Like it's like so overwhelming. And it's like, I don't think there's that real sense of purpose there that I think it is maybe in other spaces. So that's just what I noticed from my experiences though. Yeah. And I get the feeling that in every industry, there's what they say and what mm-hmm. it actually is. Right. And I mean, cause I was talking to a realtor, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he was like, Oh, we have a realtor's code of ethics, you know, oh. that we all have to abide by. I'm not just like, really? Like this is one of like the no- most notoriously like sleazy industries. Oh <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, and he, he was like very, uh, like speaking the company line, right? <laughs> that kind of thing, and it's just like I think that in the healthcare industry, it's it's very much like that too, mm-hmm. where it's a business. You know, hospitals make money. Hospital CEOs, CMOs, they they make tons and tons of money, and yeah. like there's like tons of levels of administration. And at the very top, like nobody really gives a shit about the patients and the people who make it to the top. They're the ones who were very ambitious and used medicine as just, you know, their way of getting to the top, like all fields. And it's like, that's, that's just how the world is. Like everyone's like that to some extent, it'll be the same everywhere. Um, on another level, I do feel like, you know, Peter, when you talk about like the sense of collectivism is not in like American society. And like, I, I completely agree with that. I feel like we're just in a place where most people are hungry, angry babies, you know, it's like, they've (laughs) like, it's a culture of hungry, angry babies and everybody is taught to behave like that and not taught to be anything else. And so it's like, even when somebody wants to do better like they're still a hungry angry baby and at the end of the day that's all they're going to be and so like the level of morality and collectivism and care that they're able to provide is still at the level of a hungry angry baby yeah and Dinah, you you and i at least um and the other two think you've talked about at least living in urban areas like we live in urban areas that are probably uh, at very least democratic leaning, if not entirely like solid blue for the Democrats, mm. the people that are walking around here without masks on, there's so many of them. This is, <laughs> I mean, in the Bay Area, right? And wow. I mean, the majority of them are white. These aren't people who like listen to Trump and say like China bias or anything, right? Like it's, it's supposedly people that are well-educated, that are supposed to be, you know, for democracy, all of these things. Mm. Um, and don't get me started on, on Republicans. I'm not trying to turn this to the political rant, but my point is like, Pretty early on, we saw like, wow, the average person in this country can't be bothered to do a simple thing to protect others. Not just to protect others, right? Like you're protecting yourself. If you can rely on someone to do that behavior, right? It's like um, with vaccines with herd immunity, right? Right, right. And of course, there's anti-vaxxers too. But like you get those vaccines or you wear a mask to protect other people so that in turn, it protects yourself as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's uh, as much as I hate ads like YouTube and stuff when when like Uber and fuck Uber, by the way, um, 
had an ad out be like, hey, you need to wear a mask because your mask protects this person and protects the driver and all this stuff. I was like, good. We, we, this, is, this is the level of, of information spread we need for people to listen. That's what's sad about it, right? That's why we're not like mm. a collective society. And I mean, I think because we're seven months into the pandemic, I mean, like, look, I'll admit, I have a little bit of like lockdown yeah. fatigue too. Have we forgotten that like 200 something thousand people have died. How many cities in America have have yeah. more people than that, right? And like, again, disproportionately people of color. So it, the fact that like people are relaxing now that that's, now that we've passed that milestone and we're nowhere near a vaccine. Well, maybe, maybe you two can comment on that, but mm-hmm. I don't think we're near a vaccine. Um, that that part is, is very um, disturbing. I mean, I would say disturbing, but not surprising, right? It's not surprising, I think, but it is really, it's disturbing. And especially, like you said, the vaccine is probably not for another, like early, maybe early next year, like it's still unknown, you know? So it's like, yeah, it's it's really baffling and sad, I think, to see what's happening with folks right now. Yeah, I, I wanted to, to uh, follow up on both of your stories because both of you have, have talked about pushing for anti-racism things generally, right, in, in your workspaces and in school. Um, so I actually wanted to get to this example in this paper. So there was uh, a friend of the author who went to this like webinar on March 24th. And, and March 24th was uh, in, in, in the Bay Area, at least we were already fully locked down. Uh, we, we locked down early. And this is an anecdotal, right? The problem is these things are always anecdotal. The, the peak number of participants during the webinar was like 7,000. And there was like 40, a 40 minute presentation. This person's friend, who who is a Chinese woman, sends it out to uh, two dozen friends and coworkers. It's it's not necessarily that many, but I mean, you know, it's you're just taking a recording and trying to send it out immediately. Yeah. And the text message says, "If you believe social distancing is the way to go, consider listen." Thanks to this team, him and his team, Shanghai, a city of thirty million, so far only has four and fourteen cases, three hundred twenty nine recovered, and four deaths as of today. Oh. She was aware of their friends in the West who don't have WeChat or are like you know. We're unlikely to know who this the presenter was. The presenter was a Chinese doctor. And then the responses split, if you're cynical like me, exactly how you expect them to split, right? Um, like Diana was alluding to early. Um, yes, it's a small small data size. Uh, white females in general thanked her for the like, quote-unquote important and valuable information. Older white males in general pretended her message did not exist. Uh, by subtly directing members of the 14-member group to look at apparently more credible sources. It's like the whole Google, I think, right? Yeah, one of them literally said, good morning, insert name of the team, and then his name. Useful source of coronavirus information. Go to Google homepage. Below the search bar, click on coronavirus information and resources. That will take you to a page with lots of information. Good luck. What a fucking rude thing to say, first of all. Uh, but but the point the point here being that because she was an Asian woman, she was taking less seriously. So, I mean, do you two, like what, to what extent do you two feel like that's, that's what's happening to you two at, at your uh, respective positions? All the time, all the time. <laughs> I have to really uncomfortably assert myself because, um, you know, I'm a, a petite Asian woman with a small voice. So um, I even got told yesterday by a patient that I had a bedroom voice. What? Like, yeah. Oh I mean, my god. Yeah, I just all the time I have to really almost like scream just to be heard. And like I I don't know about other people, I don't enjoy screaming or yelling. It's very 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 difficult for me to um be noticed, I guess. 
Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I think I do get noticed, but not heard. Yeah. Like it's like, I see you and it's like either I'm told I'm like being disruptive, which, um, or not professional, which I've been told in other jobs. Oh my God. Unprofessional is like the biggest dog whistle racism word. Yeah. It's like, and then when you're, especially when like you're the only person of color working, um, your space. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, I've had that happen or, or saying something and not really being heard or really questioned as to like, why, why I feel that way or like why something is bothering me and like having to over explain. Um, I've had that be a lot of my experience of like, why does this bother me? Or like having to also be really clear of like, yeah, like I'm also a woman of color. Like, I am. <laughs> so, um, you know, and like being made invisible in that, in that way too, of like have, and then I think that does a different like thing to your psyche. Like I've had that in several jobs of like having to like explain that, like I am a woman of color and that like racism has impacted me and people, especially white people, like really not wanting to acknowledge that. Um, again, just like wanting to really live in that binary and not recognizing like there's so much complexity there, um, has been, challenging and so it's like ultimately it's like easier to either not speak about it or just be absent um from that conversation ironically for me like um zoom and like all of like being online for my classes and everything has been a blessing in disguise because it's through technology that i can like actually kind of almost have to be noticed and heard or like not necessarily noticed. Mm -hmm. You're right. um, That it's more about being heard. Right. Through technology, that's definitely been a lot more helpful. But when I'm there in person, it's so easy for people to like speak over me Mm -hmm. and like just never even hear me or pretend not to hear me. That just happens all the time. Or like, I'll have it where it's like, I'll say something and it's like, there's just silence. (laughs) after I speak and I'm like okay I'm just gonna keep it moving so that's always like really interesting because it's like no one speaking up is like definitely undermining you know like your expertise and your your my or my expertise like my knowledge what I'm what I'm bringing to the table and so it's like how many times can you do that without feeling uncomfortable or um being basically like implicitly told like not to talk yeah it's, it's it happens in so many different ways Diana, did you have anything you wanted to to speak to? I mean, I, I think your field is a little bit less. I mean, it's not medical, but I don't know. I mean, I've, I've always found your field of like technical writing super interesting, but um, I imagine the same stereotypes and the same um, forms of oppression exist there too. I mean, I just work from home, so I don't have to deal with shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I do it. I actively try to work with people of color when I'm of color and that's that's a conscious decision because if you have a female name and if you have a foreign name you're less likely to get your articles published as a scientist mm-hmm. you're less likely to get your research funded as a scientist wow. you're less mm-hmm. likely to get taken seriously so what I do is I try to add my skill set to other people's repertoire, you know, mm-hmm. in research and to just try to level that playing field for them. And like, that's kind of, that's one of the things that I actively like seek out in my work. It's kind of like you, Sara, where you're just like, I don't want to do work. I don't <laughs> want to give my labor yeah. to 
anyone or any industry that is actively causing harm and that's like why i quit everything and started doing this stuff now Mm, yeah exactly for your own like mental health and your own like yeah well-being yeah i mean i'll be real like the reason i got into biology in the first place was because my parents are huge hypochondriacs, you know, they're immigrants. They don't know what the fuck is going on with their health and they're constantly worried about it. Mm. And I wanted to get that, that knowledge base to be able to help them. When I was in high school, like late high school, my, my grandpa got really sick mm-hmm. and it was literally like the same story as um do you remember the movie farewell oh yeah yep uh, yeah. it's like senior year of high school my grandpa got really sick my mom was gonna go to china and like help take care of him and stuff mm-hmm. and she was gonna take me and i was like so pissed about it <laughs> and i like yelled and i was like you gotta take me and then she took me and then we went back and you know we spent some time there and i think it was also one of those situations where we didn't actually talk to him about what oh, wow. was going on yeah. so it was like exactly the same <laughs> shit <laughs> you know, as I'm thinking about that, there's an extra layer there, right? With like the knowledge of science and everything being taught from young. Like you have that knowledge to kind of comprehend and understand what's going on. But like elderly don't. My grandma literally mm-hmm. thought my my uh that her daughter could get cancer from kissing a cancerous oh. dog's nose. <laughs> so like <laughs> you know, they don't have that like that's part actually part of a um a healthcare barrier. It's, you know, low health literacy, they don't understand. So bearing them that pain, I think, actually kind of makes more sense in this type of instance. Yeah, that actually reminds me, uh, I was listening to um, Self Evident, I think is the name of this this podcast. It's like an Asian American podcast. It was specifically around like responding or like uh, anti-Asian hate during COVID. And one of the first stories was was around that was was this older elderly Chinese patient who came in and somebody brought it up earlier with the, the language barrier wasn't really able to say much. Right. And he's just like, Oh, he kind of like fell and he was like walking to going park and he fell and he like bruised himself. The, it was the nurse, the doctor was, was Korean American. And she noticed, she's like, that's, that doesn't look right. Like you don't get that from just falling. And so she had to like go find a Cantonese speaker and come in. And it turns out like, yeah, he was walking in Golden Gate Park and a bunch of teenagers came and beat his ass. Oh my God. But like he, he was literally trying not to, to, to cause trouble about it. I mean, we, we don't know the, the, the full story there, but um, one, like you said, is it's just like, well, there's a lack of resources. So I don't know if he even could immediately ask for a translator if he even knew that. I'm guessing he lives in, in San Francisco. It's been long enough, but uh, that's one thing, and the second of which is not specific to him, but the uh, the element of class, right? It's been known while at New York in New York City, um, Asian people have the largest uh, wealth gap in terms of uh, wealth, mm-hmm. in- wealth inequality. It's not people our age, right? Millennials that are poor. It's it's a lot of um, working class families that live in Chinatown. A lot of them elderly, and a lot of them don't speak English. Which in it, it, like there's no there's no national language in America. And it's actually great that there's communities that have the ability to to help these people that don't don't know English coming here. But then that translates to these um, lack of resources to learn about public services or or get access to healthcare. If you assume that like okay, well, 
these people don't speak the language at the hospitals or like maybe the hospitals don't care to provide those translators. Like, I don't know how easy it was to find a translator. I don't know how long ago this was, but they did um, pass several laws um, that you have to provide it. Mm. Yeah, so that there is that. And uh, in my experiences with my grandmother, and I don't know if this is like throughout the nation, but yeah, they do provide translator services. That's something that they're required to do. But then again, like it's not always that the translating, it, uh, the interpreting is like 100%. You know, there is once that I went to an appointment with my grandmother and the translator was asking like, <laughs> Questions that the doctor wasn't even asking us. Like, it was just really off. Oh, well, yeah. what? Yeah. So, you know, there's that level there. Uh, I read several research studies where limited English proficient individuals, yeah, had a huge mistrust of the healthcare system, had yeah. a huge mistrust of the interpretations or the interpreters. There's a lot. And even if, like, they do have. Um, interpreters they're also scared like there's also um, a bias there like or a fear there that their culture isn't going to be respected mm. or their resources aren't culturally appropriate like for example with diabetes diets right you can't just tell everyone to go on a Mediterranean diet you know that's <laughs> not gonna survive with like Chinese people eating Chinese food or like South Asian people you know eating yeah they're not going to go on a Mediterranean diet. So you have to explain what is like culturally appropriate for them to eat that or like what is appropriate for them to eat within their own culture that is still uh, adheres to like a diabetes diet. Another disappointing but not necessarily surprising thing, huh? That the translators aren't always very good. Yeah. My takeaway is, as patients, you actually have more power to change things, to change the system than you do as a health practitioner. And as a patient, you, you've really got to be advocating for your own rights. Otherwise, you're not going to get the care that you deserve and need within the current system. So what are, what's some advice for like how to just be a patient? You know, like what, what should you do? going into the clinic how, what should you prepare for how should you prepare for like say helping an elderly relative who has medical conditions or has covid even you know like stuff like that i think that translation is a huge part of it but also not just translating but like really paying attention to what the healthcare providers are telling you and then also going home and doing a little bit of research right like obviously you're not gonna earn a medical degree like doing research at home but like kind of checking up on what they say if it's true or not especially if you don't have a science background or a stem background or anything like that is what i would advise because that's kind of what i did on a serious note there it's gonna sound like a joke and it's not what sites are are trustable because webmd is like a laughing stock everyone's like oh if you ever look it up it just tells you of cancer so like a lot of people know not to to trust that do you have like credible places that you can go cdc uh, <laughs> although like of course like the whole mask thing right but like um when i do research yeah it's like based on cdc okay um like mayo clinic Oh, and then there's like other, you know, like diabetes is a huge problem now, right? So you can probably go to like American Diabetes Association. 
that's useful to know like where we can go to find that information because it's useful to know that the, the translating thing is, is helpful. Although, to be honest, most of us ourselves probably don't serve as the world's best translators to, to our relatives. Um, although we should probably learn a couple of basic phrases for that. Right. But even if you can like rudimentally understand some things, like even just being there to kind of check to see if the translator is like translating properly, I think that's also really helpful because I don't, you know, always translate for my grandmother either. Sometimes I feel like the language is too technical for me or whatever it is, but at least I could be there to check and like follow along with what the doctor is saying or, or similar things like that. Cool. I was just going to add that I think it's about doing the research on like, well, whatever condition, you know, if you have a family member or you yourself are going into the, you know, going in for care, like, you know, what what is the key information you need to know? So looking that up, you know, or talking to folks that you maybe know that are medical professionals in some sort of way and like getting their thoughts um, on what to advocate for, what you should just keep an eye out for. And then I think like when you're actually physically, if you can be, if you're in that space, like literally being with your family member and not really like letting them out of your sight <laughs> and being really vocal about what their needs are. Because I think that's often from what I've seen, those patients are just not heard by the medical professionals. And so it's like, how can you use your voice, especially if you're a family member, whoever, you know, your, your loved one is like in the healthcare system and they don't speak, if they don't speak English or they don't speak English well, it's like, that's another layer that I think makes it easier to, again, like ignore them. And so how can you kind of use your voice to mm -hmm. advocate, honestly, like cause like a fit or like, you know, like really like push back um, and be vocal. Because I think also, I mean, I'll just speak for me, like that internalization around like, I, I shouldn't push back. Like a doctor knows best, like, you know what I mean? And it's like, no, you actually like need to speak up for like what you need or what like your family member needs. Um, and don't be afraid to like really be vocal about that. So yeah, I think I think those are all things like that folks need to do just to just to be aware and like and really recognize like you know your health best. Like if a medical professional is saying like something is an issue, but like your family member is telling you it doesn't feel right or you or like the patient as the patient like know something isn't right like be really clear and then like ask for your and what i've also read too is like be really clear and say like can you document that you have refused like me treatment or can you document that i requested this for my grandparent or whatever mm -hmm. and like you refuse and i think when when you put it in writing they kind of freak out a little bit and they're less likely to like not listen to you like they're more likely to listen to you i think when you ask for that documentation that's right a that's a good point that's a good point i actually read that from an article about black women yeah that's where i read it too i think yeah i think i read the same article too <laughs> <laughs> that's really good advice because like yeah you know having worked in a hospital and like just in the healthcare industry even a little bit everyone their number one priority is covering their own ass yep. right yep yeah so exactly. just make it hard for them like um if you're uncomfortable throwing a fit right being loud just ask them to document exactly what they what they told you like yep. or you can go in with a recording device and like you document it yourself yeah. and ask them to also do the same because right. what they're afraid of is getting sued and mm -hmm. losing money yep. right yep. 
if you don't want to be confrontational, just ask them like, why? Like, you know, you don't have to be aggressive about it. You just ask them like, why? Like, what's the rationale behind what you're doing? Mm. Keep asking them questions. If you don't understand, you know, they have like part of like our job as healthcare providers are to explain it in a way that is very um, accessible to our patients. Yeah, right. The people who are going to be the biggest assholes, they're also going to be the best at being passive aggressive. (laughs) So when you meet somebody like that, don't let it freak you out that like they have some medical degree and they're making Mm -hmm. you feel stupid. That's them being insecure and feeling threatened. So you keep fucking pushing as far as you can. I was wondering, is there any kind of service or organizations where like younger, you know, maybe like 2G Asians can like volunteer their time to just like help an older person with no relatives go to Mm. a clinic and like do just like translate for them or just like be there kind of as an assist or anything like that? You know, I don't know if there is. I feel like part of the problem with that would be HIPAA. Right. You're right. right. But um, I do know that there are patients with caregivers. Um, Sometimes like caregivers that they found through like their church or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll be close to the family and um, they'll, you know, communicate with the family what's going on with the the patient. Uh, So sometimes they do help out with stuff like that. Even like I've done this before, like, cause you know, sometimes you're not, you're not staying there overnight with your family member. Yeah. Just having them call you and talking to the healthcare provider on the phone. That's also, that can also be very helpful. FaceTiming them, stuff like that. Definitely like you don't have to be there in person if you, you can't, right? Like we have technology now. Hopefully, like it's not that hard to teach your uh, your elderly family member that uh, how to use you know basic like FaceTime or or something like that. So telemedicine. <laughs> yeah, I also don't know about any um, organization like that. Yeah, that's like a really cool idea, mm-hmm. um, and I think I think the HIPAA issues might be something to think about. But like, I definitely think I think that's something that like that if people are interested should definitely like be thought about especially around especially with COVID and like you know challenges with like even family members being able to like get into the hospitals like to see family members and stuff too you know what does accessibility look like like support and advocacy look like for those those folks that are like literally in the hospital maybe totally by themselves I wish there was something like that though you know what's great about the the two of y'all suggestions this is partly like I think us wanting to make sure we have a positive spin on things because like otherwise it's like (laughs) System sucks. It's racist as hell. Fuck everything. <laughs> but no, seriously, like what, what you two are suggesting, it, it boils down to pretty simple things, right? Like speak up, you know, stand your ground and, yeah. and but also like speak up and just like take note of things, you know, document things, right. being able to talk to people um, often, especially if they're, they're your relatives or talk to the healthcare professional. Like these are things that it doesn't take a medical degree to do. It doesn't take any degree to do, right? Just take right. some humanity and, mm-hmm, yeah. and, and diligence, right, to, to the details part. And so that I think that's great advice that y'all are giving because that's something that all of us could do today, tomorrow. Um, I mean, mm. as this pandemic is going nowhere, I, I think that's a, right. a very useful set of things for, for people to, to take, take away. Yeah. 
it's community care, you know, and it's, it's political in spirit, but it's not as um, stressful or scary as putting yourself on the front lines. Like that kind of advocacy in some ways is as important. Yeah, I think it is. I was going to say, like, I think like combining that kind of advocacy, like on the individual level, plus advocacy, because I think we talked about this earlier of like, patients like coming together, community members coming together, um, to advocate for change in like a particular um, health system or, you know, like school, you know, like, um, a, you know, health professional school of some kind. Like, I think there's then like, what does that advocacy look like in those spaces? I really like around community engagement and like community, like building to really like create change at like the institutional level um, within like those healthcare systems. I think like also is like, what could that look like? You know, what kind of app? And like, I think that's like the advocacy on like on a larger scale, obviously, but obviously like really important too. And like, I think again, like the place where more impact could happen to create change of like in those systems because of like the, the financial impact um, that, that, that would right. have on those institutions. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with you, Sarah. I touched on earlier about like, uh, like the black skin disparity and how mm-hmm. we are not taught how to assess black skin. And that's a problem. Honestly, it just took a little bit of push for me mentioning it to kind of start to get the ball rolling. And hopefully um, it will be implemented in my school soon. I have some faculty support. I have the student organization, the nursing student organization support. It's not something that's like really crazy or out there, right? We don't have to jump immediately to anti-racist training, even though like hopefully we can. But like even taking a baby step like this, I think is super doable in schools and curriculums across the nation. It really shouldn't be that hard because no one can say like, hey, yeah, let's, you know, we don't want to teach about black skin. Like that's a terrible idea. Like who can say that, right? Right. So even like taking a small step, yeah, it takes a few emails. It takes, you know, a little bit of time, but like not that much. The payoff definitely outweighs, you know, the effort that you put into it. Right. And I think it's important to realize that like that is what implicit bias is, you Mm -hmm. know, it's not even that kind of like malicious ignorance we were talking about earlier. It's like these are people that are are, like trying to do better, but they just don't know how because they don't know what they don't know. It doesn't take maliciousness. Uh It just takes like not being a priority and not being thought of at all to be killed right Mm. it's more about your impact than your intent Mm. so it doesn't matter how you know nice or how well-intentioned you are if you're killing black babies that that's that's what you're doing yeah 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 i do think we have to move away from this whole like good intent is the end all be all and 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 that should somehow absolve the impact which materially first of all is impossible but even if it's like a words i mean you can you can uh, emotionally and mentally damage someone and also like like a lot of you were saying like discourage you from you know wanting to do more or it, may, it might discourage a patient from trying to seek help or something like that and then yeah that's mm-hmm. that that is a casualty that is a a, a loss too mm-hmm. yeah it's not like we're even asking for much when i'm asking for <laughs> rights here we're just asking <laughs> to not die yeah, yeah exactly so it's like 100%. pretty basic <laughs> i think there is like the need for change and i do think like 
I think there is potential for creating like really amazing, like transformative change in the healthcare system. But I think it's like, how do you do it in the system that we currently have, you know? So that's something I just grapple with. There is the opportunity to create change, which I think Jiayun, like you've talked about, obviously like change curriculum and like doing different things in terms of the education space and like healthcare. But like how, how does that work when like the same institutions are the ones teaching these things too? And so I struggle with that just personally. But I do think like the potential for change is like definitely there. Right. We were talking before about like, you know, creating small, small changes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Just like to be kind to your mental health and like, you know, right. not to expect yeah. too much out of yourself. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, to, to build on that, back to the idea of collectivism. I mean, a lot of that is just knowing that it's it's not it's not one person's job alone to, you know, overthrow an, an, uh, right. the system and make these sweeping changes. In <laughs> mm-hmm. fact, that, that very yeah. idea is has a little bit of this internalized American heroics or whatever. Yes. Um, so, so, yeah, knowing that we all have a role to play, but that doesn't mean we all get to sit back and do nothing because other people are going to do the work, right? We right. all should do something. It's, I mean, it's something that that I struggle with too. Like, how much is enough? How mu- how do I know if I'm doing enough versus if I'm just, you know, right. being lazy or, or scared? Mm. But yeah, I mean, that you know, calling attention to these things is, is is a good first step. Naming action items that are quite simple, like Diana's saying, we're not asking you to like overthrow the system right now. We're, we're asking you to take these steps to to making sure that they're our own people, other people of color, it just, everyone is treated like a, a fair, respected human being in the healthcare system. So it's it's not hard to take those first steps. Yeah, for sure. If these issues, these community issues are eating away at you, like, honestly, just just do some, some sort of minor type of advocacy once a month, because yeah. the guilt of not doing anything is probably... <laughs> weighing on you more than if you just went and did something talk to somebody on the phone um like this kind of thing like we're, there's such a wide spe- spectrum of advocacy that you can do you know like there's like marching on the front lines of a protest and getting tear gas yeah that's like mm. a far end it's not even the most radical thing you can do right but it's like it's what people think of when they think of advocacy, but there's so many more other things like putting this, like you guys sharing your stories is advocacy, you know, like going with your older relatives to a doctor is advocacy. Like there's so many different ways that you can do something that like, it doesn't make any sense for you to like not do something, especially if you're stressing out about it. Right. And it also occurred to me that a lot of times, like, the Asian-American discussion on mental health implies that mental health is our only problem, that the rest of the healthcare industry is doing just fine for us. <laughs> yeah, that's just not true, right? Because, like, the focus of the mental health industry is that, like, our culture shame us into not seeking health. Yeah. healthcare and that's yeah. that's only a part of it there's all these barriers these systemic barriers into of getting mental health treatment and that is a small sector of the barriers of getting healthcare treatment period for asian americans and we need to consider it 
for ourselves, for our parents, for like all these, all these older Asian Americans, you know, cause that's who is being affected the most in general and by COVID, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know any like Asian um, Americans that have passed away from COVID, but I know so many of my friends' parents and my parents' friends who have died of cancer. Oh, wow. It's like a really high percentage just in terms of like the Asian American people yeah. that I know who have died of cancer versus other people. Oh, wow. And I just, I don't know why, but I, I think it's a combination of their lives being much harder and they're mm. not getting the treatment that other people are getting in this country. Right. And I think that that's bullshit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Like diabetes, right. is like a huge problem all over the world and it's um, a huge comorbidity. So, you know, um, it impacts all of your body systems and, Asian Americans have the highest undiagnosed rates of diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, part of the that. reason why is because we weren't being screened at our proper BMI. The BMI right. rate for um, cutoff, cut point for um, Asian or Asians is 23, whereas the rest of the general population is 25. So really? those two oh, points, wow. yeah, and this was only implemented four years ago. Four so, years wow. ago. Ridiculous. Four years ago. Oh, yeah. Two thousand sixteen. Wow. I, I don't even know what to say to that. Um, yeah. yeah, oh my God. <laughs> so can you imagine like how many Asian Americans had to have their legs amputated or you know, or whatever Jeez, else, right? Dude. Like cardiac problems. Right. Because amputation oh, apparently oh is the first line. <laughs> yeah, according to that. <laughs> God, oh my God, dark. Yeah. so messed up. Yeah. Does diabetes also make you a higher, um, more at risk of, of health complications from COVID? Yes, everything. Because yep. it's literally your blood vessels. You're, you know, um, like there's too much sugar in your blood. And that makes your heart work harder. That um, eventually it affects your peripheral vascular system, like, um, for example, your legs, which is why there's so many problems with that. They start to lose feeling in their legs. They don't notice when they're injured. It affects your eyesight. It affects mm-hmm. your kidneys, everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like also a huge um, comorbidity with heart problems. And heart problems are one of like the number one co- comorbidities with COVID. So it's just like God. all of these problems, you know, Asian Americans are getting a huge brunt of it because we're not receiving adequate care. And like you were saying, Diana, that huge part of that is like healthcare. Mental health is a part of healthcare. And of course, the stigma and everything around that should decrease. But there's also large barriers to healthcare just um, that is non-mental health related. That is, yeah, that is just so shocking. I mean, first of all, I doubt anyone who's who's listened to, to these podcasts in this episode believed all the bullshit racist stereotypes of like, <laughs> of why Asian people get ecstasy, why disease. Oh, it's because their food is this, this, and this. Like, no, come on. Right. That's, that's BS. It's great that you have that fact um, out there, Shoyun. Yeah. So um, <laughs> bring your parents <laughs> in to the doctor, make sure they're screening them properly, get them in there early because. 
um, you can reverse type 2 diabetes now. It's doable, but not easy. But like also once it reaches past a certain point, I don't know if that's possible at that point. Mm-hmm. That's all really good advice. Oh, I was also thinking of like, you know, that whole like skinny fat phenomenon and how like uh, people are saying like, oh, there's like people who look like they're underweight or the correct or like not overweight, you know, and people just assume that they're healthy, but they aren't. Do you see that as a stereotype of like Asian patients or is that not, not so much? So actually, as you're mentioning that, that does remind me the reason why our BMI cut points are lower is because Asians tend to collect, um, their fat tends to collect around the abdominal area. Abdominal fat is like the number one contribution to diabetes. So that's why. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I have so so much abdominal fat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, as long as you're not larger than, I think, 35 inches circumference. But also, I don't know if that also applies to Asian Asians or if that's just a general. Yeah. Right. Like, that's the thing. Like, there's not, there's no statistics. Like, we just don't have the data. Well, and even like Asian, again, it's like, are we talking all Asian people? Are we talking like East Asian? Are we talking South Asian? Are we talking Central Asian? Like, it's like, because those are all such different, like, ethnic backgrounds. You know what I mean? It's like, again, just like lumping in if you click, like, Uh Asian on your demographic survey before you get into the clinic. It's like, okay, that's, it just, it's all so arbitrary. It is. But with diabetes, South Asians also have a very high rate of diabetes. (laughs) So, I mean, just for this particular, (laughs) you know, um, this particular example, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it does apply. Although, of course, you know they they do study. Um, there was an act passed this year. It's called the South Asian Heart Health um, oh. Awareness and Research Act, and that was passed just this year. So, you know, they do right. have these things like it's grants for research and like um, awareness programs, like health promotion programs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is good. But I mean, come on, <laughs> only yeah, now, yeah. really. Yeah, right, right. It's yeah. Like, okay, it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah, there's just like layers yeah. of disambiguation yeah. that's needed for yeah. this sort of thing. Koreans have a much higher incidence of stomach cancer. Oh, I than, saw that too. Yeah. Yeah, other ethnic wow. groups. And it's like they just they just started looking into this um in the last you know, five years or something. Jeez. So what are they missing? So there's probably yeah. like generations. Like, so many people have had to die. Oh, I I think somewhere, when I was in grad school, I actually learned that East Asian, in general, maybe East Asian women are more likely to get lung cancer, even if they have not smoked at all in their lives. And it's like a different type of cellular lung cancer. It's like a different type of Mm -hmm. cell that metastasizes in our lung cancers than in like uh, white people's lung cancers. Mm. So it's like really hard to treat. It responds to different kinds of drugs. Even if you treat it, if you're able to go into remission, it might, it, it's like much like more likely to come back after like a few years. So like, there's just so many like weird 
things. And I don't know, would it be actually useful for people to dig into the data, you know, from their like countries of ethnic origin, like the healthcare data, just to see like what they might be more prone to, you know, even if, you know, like, let's say they're an adoptee or something and they don't Mm -hmm. have access to their family histories or something like that. I mean, probably like, you know, the population, like the research that's been done in our own like respective ethnic countries, it's going to be done on people like us. So probably the data there, there might be a lot more information there. But then again, there's like such a huge language barrier, especially for those of us who have lived here for a while. So I, I think that that's really difficult. Maybe if there was an initiative to translate those studies to make them available all over the world, that would be really good. That's like my backup employment plan. If I get fired from my job, I'm just going like, <laughs> to extra study Chinese for, for a bit, get 100% bilingual, say, then translate all that for people. <laughs> I mean, that's a great idea, though. Like, maybe that's something that we could look into, provide that as a resource for people. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I, I definitely have some friends who are even more bilingual than I am and could mm-hmm. definitely do that. I definitely think that that's an underserved thing. I mean, I was mm-hmm. joking with a friend about this the other day, not in the healthcare realm, but like, y'all know, like this, it was on subtle Asian traits, this like, um, I think I said on the other the other time that you and I talked, Diana, of like this whole like, caution, crab bits, three each, one dollar, or like, or no, it was like, uh, shakwayu, right? Like, which is which? Like, and the people just lazily translate it to idiot fish. Do you want to eat an idiot fish? And it's just like all of these like mistranslations. But like, <laughs> you know, those people who run those shops don't give a shit that it's like mistranslated. You know, so I feel like maybe some people tried there, but this is obviously a far more useful cause of translation than like, hey man, you need to like slightly sharp your grammar on the on the thing, even though no one cares to read it. They're just gonna bite anyways. Yeah, for sure. No, let's let's definitely keep talking about that. I don't, I don't know, listeners. This is something that you're interested in. Please reach out to us. Yeah, and for for the Patreons, uh, I mean, we have a whole Chinese channel in Discord now. That that seems like a useful place. Chinese, Vietnamese, and Korean, I believe. So all of those languages, and we obviously need more than that. Those aren't the only three Asian languages. That'd be helpful too. I mean, I, I, quite a few people listen by now. So hopefully that that's a, a useful thing that comes out of this. Right. And Jess is starting a whole social media platform. So maybe maybe that's a project that we can post to that at some point. Yeah, I'll, I'll run that <laughs> idea by her. I don't know. We'll see. Or maybe I'll just like uh, let her listen to this <laughs> episode and be like, hey, we volunteered you for this surprise. <laughs> Can't say no now. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um. No, I think I think that's a good place to end is just like you know there's like all these problems but there's so many little things that we can do that together will add up to a lot of progress so yeah i mean thank you all for you know chatting with me about this for contributing your experiences and your thoughts and um your expertise Thanks for listening, even though it's like a scary, depressing time. But yeah, if you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and donate to our Patreon. And, you know, if you want to contribute, 
to any of these things that we're talking about, please contact us. All right. Have a great night. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone.